Strap yourself in because we're set up, switched on, and ready to go. Sit down if you need. The hits just keep on coming. It's voices up close. Here is your host, Mark Benton. Hey, glad to have you. Episode two will not disappoint. As a refresher, you can hear us Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, giving you a guest each episode with decorated broadcasting credentials, play by play personality role. We're here to cover it and learn more about them in life and work. Their moments, their favorite calls, their insight. You dial this one up because you probably can't wait to get to who we're talking with here on this episode. A legend in the NHL booth, Hockey Hall of Fame. 44 years all in TV and radio play-by-play with the Los Angeles Kings. He's got a statue outside Staples Center alongside Wayne Gretzky, Luke Robitaille, Magic Johnson, Jerry West, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Shaquille O'Neal, Chick Hearn, and Oscar De La Hoya. Very fine company. A voice of my youth growing up several years in the Los Angeles area. I'm fortunate to have gained him later as an ally in the broadcast world. An enormous influence. There are many, personally and professionally, who share the same testimony. Class is maybe the word used most tied to this legend. I'm pleased to share Bob Miller with you today here on Voices Up Close. Let's get to it and roll tape. The Los Angeles Kings are indeed the kings of the National Hockey League. They are the 2012 Stanley Cup champions. Here on the left side, Martinez over to Clifford. Right side, shot from there, and a save and a yes! rebound, score! Yes! Kings win the cup! Held in by Duchesne. Duchesne's pass in deep to Taylor, to Gretzky, he scores! He's done it! Wayne Gretzky, the great one, has become the greatest of them all! The Kings are going to go to the Stanley Cup Finals! The game is over! The Kings are four wins away! On the draw, shot by Evans, he scores! Oh! Evans shot it from the right side, up under the crossbar. And the Kings have taken the lead in the series. They came from behind to win it in overtime, 6-5. to five. Going in the middle, in the slot, he shoots, scores! We're going back to Boston! Carter in deep to Dowdy, scores! Kings win in overtime! Fans get a chance to thank Bob, the players get a chance to thank Bob. Jersey's off the back, is coming up, and it's going to feel so much better with a win! Well, it thrills me to no end to welcome our guest on episode two, 44 years voice of the Los Angeles Kings, 27 years on television, nearly 3,400 games in the NHL, over five decades behind the mic, two Stanley Cup titles, now Kings team ambassador, a mentor to me, a mentor to many in this line of work. Welcome Hall of Fame voice, Bob Miller. You're on Voices Up Close. I am very, very glad to have you today. Well, thank you, Mike. It's uh, nice to be with you, and uh, it was nice to enjoy our association when you were down here in 
Southern California, and uh, I am very proud of you to see the advances that you have made in broadcasting, and I'm sure there's many more great moments ahead for you. Thank you very much, sir, and uh, you touched on some of the greatest memories that, that I ever had when I first got into this business, and uh, you were certainly a big part of that, and the drive right behind me to, you know, make this a, a career. So I'm thrilled to know when to have you join me here on this. Uh, first off, I begin, last Los Angeles Kings game you watched was what? Oh, gee, let me see. What was that? It was right before the, uh, I think it was an afternoon game, and uh, I can't remember the exact uh, date. I'd have to look and see what that would have been. Let's see, March 12th is when the season was put on pause yeah so i think i was at an afternoon game probably um, around uh, a game i was going to go to a game against uh, anaheim on the 13th of march but they had closed the season down for the time being on the 12th so the last time i went to a game would have been uh, well, let me go even back into into February, I think it was uh, against Pittsburgh on the 26th of February. And uh, uh, my wife and I had gone to about 12 games this year before they put the season on pause. Well, it's great to hear your voice once again and during a time like this and really any time, a level of comfort that we can certainly embrace. How often do you go back and look at old tapes, whether it might be from 2012, 2014, or even 1993? Well, that's part of the, the pleasure I'm having right now, staying home and with this uh, uh, lockdown and, and no games being played. Fox Sports West here is replaying a lot of all of the playoff wins that the Kings had back in 2012 and 14, played the games back in 93 when the Kings had a great series against Toronto yeah. to, to go to the Stanley Cup final against Montreal. And I really enjoy not only watching those games, but seeing the difference in the style of play then and the style of play now. Uh, I watched a game in 1993 uh, against Toronto I said you could have called hooking every five seconds. <laughs> I mean, it was it was wide open. Anything went, and uh, and they put the whistles away and, and uh, let them play. But uh, uh, so I've had fun going back and looking at those uh, at those games from years ago. If you could call one game in Kings history all over again, besides the two Stanley Cup titles, which one would it be? I think it would be the Game 7 in Toronto that mm -hmm. year in 93 when the Kings had to win uh, the Game 7 to go to the Stanley Cup Final. And just the feeling that we were so close to the first Stanley Cup Final in our history and knowing that what was on the line and the game, it was just such an exciting game. It was even more exciting than the Stanley Cup Finals that year. But uh, I would say that game against Toronto. I want to just kind of play a little bit of what if. And I remember how close and how tight that game was. I know that maybe it felt like for some folks who were associated with it in the press box, you were sweating bullets looking at the final seconds tick off the clock in a game like that. What if Toronto ties that game? Likelier to happen. Wayne Gretzky gets four goals in the game, scores in overtime. 
or an unsung hero wins it and lifts the Kings into the Stanley Cup final? Well, I wouldn't bet against Gretzky getting his fourth goal the way that <laughs> game was going. Uh, hard to, to bet against him, but we had some players on that team that were outstanding, and and uh, the, Tony Granato and, and other guys on that team. So any one of them, I, it didn't matter to me who scored as long as it was one of the Kings that scored to win that game. And they couldn't believe it when the Kings did win that game in Toronto that, you know, they felt they wanted, of course, Toronto to play Montreal in the Stanley Cup final because in those days they were in different conferences so they could play each other. And uh, the Kings ruined that. And there's that great story, maybe you've heard it, about the morning of a game seven in Toronto. Mm. Wayne Gretzky is going down to the lobby of the hotel in the elevator to go to the morning skate and in the in the elevator is a security guard and Wayne says to him how's it going today and the guy said well it's going fine this morning but oh tonight after that game my job will be so tough that the city will be going crazy you know when the and and Wayne thinks he thinks the Leafs are going to win this game so the elevator gets to the main floor Wayne steps out and he stops and he turns around and he said to the security guy, don't worry about your job tonight at 1030. And the guy said, why? Wayne said, because mine starts at 730. Mm. And went out and scored the hat trick and Kings win the game uh, by one goal, although it was so close and buzzing around the King net in the final minute of the game. The Maple Leafs had the puck and they had so many chances to tie it. And uh, you talk about sweating bullets. I was wringing wet by the end of that game. <laughs> it wasn't from being thrown in the shower. <laughs> what did the plane ride feel like after that? Well, we, we stayed in yep. Toronto because we were going to open the next series, the final, in uh, Montreal. So, But it was, you know, at the end of that game in Maple Leaf Gardens, they made the announcement, anyone with Los Angeles, go directly to the bus. You will not be allowed to go anywhere else. You'll have an escort. Uh, back to the bus and everything they had they had the area to get on the bus blocked off hmm. uh, leaf fans were there they were upset throwing balloons full of blue paint at the bus and hmm. um and not a lot not a lot of players got on that bus because being in toronto a lot of them had family there and they were going out with them so there were only about five of us on the bus going back to the hotel <laughs> but I'd never had so many phone calls from stations, radio stations around the country to talk about that game and the fact that the Kings were headed to the Stanley Cup final. I mean, stuff of legends with Wayne Gretzky getting a hat trick in that game. You almost wonder what it would be like if he had four. The goal celebration might be the statue now that is up for him at this point. Yeah, that's right. They, they might have retired his number in all the arenas <laughs> right then and there. <laughs> Uh, what did 44 years with one team tell you about work and life? Well, I think it tells me that, you know, be prepared. And I've always told people that the most important phrase you will hear is be prepared to do your job. And it goes for any walk of life, not only broadcasting, in any job, be prepared to do your job. And you'll keep that job for as long as you want. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and that's the way I always felt, and, and that's the way I approached it. I think I maybe studied more in the 40, 
first to 44th year of my career with the Kings than I did in the first year Hmm. because things changed and there's so much more information available through the internet now that you almost feel if you're not up to date on everything, some fans are going to find out you made a mistake. Best day of work you ever had was what? Well, probably getting set to go to uh, what I thought would be the final game uh, of the Stanley Cup final Hmm. in 2012. Just the anticipation of being there and being able to call that game uh, and the excitement. And, you know, we did it at home in both of those Stanley Cup wins. And to me, that is so thrilling that you win it in front of your home fans. And uh, so I was really excited about that game. And, of course, I I was excited about the games when Wayne Gretzky could have passed Gordie Howe uh, in points. And there were several of those leading up to the time that he did it. So, uh, you know, down through the career, there were were so many exciting moments. And there were so many moments that you just were down because the team wasn't doing very well. But I think that's the, the, the fun of being with one team uh, you you're with them all the time and uh, and you live and die with the with the glory moments and and then you despair because maybe you didn't win certain games and and you relive it over and over in your mind last night i had to fire up youtube and really take myself back down a trip in memory lane for instance i flipped on a second round game Kings versus Canucks, 1993. Prime ticket was in my wheelhouse growing up, and each game presented an element of energy. People will often associate your call, Bob, with energy. Why is that word so important for play-by-play? Well, I think it's because that's what you want to bring to the to the listener, uh, the viewer or the listener. You want to convey the excitement of that game in your voice. And uh, uh, to me... Uh, the game was so exciting to me anyway that uh, that I was excited. And you, you can get overexcited and talk too fast and nobody can understand what you're saying, which defeats the purpose. So uh, I, I just always had excitement about doing live television or, or live radio. And, uh, and so those games, even just driving to the games, I'd be excited about what might I see tonight especially when the Kings had Wayne Gretzky, what might I see and be able to describe that I've never seen before? And, uh, and those, were, those were tremendous years for the Kings. The most important trait an announcer in hockey can carry is what? Paint the picture for the fans, uh, especially on radio, so that your description is, is so good that that fan, if he's driving in his car or sitting at home, can actually see that game in his mind and you know there's a lot of times what you see in your mind is more exciting than what really happened if you saw it in person because that announcer can again paint that picture of what's going on and have some drama and excitement to his voice and so that the guy who can't see the game is almost on the edge of his of his seat at home thinking what's going to happen and uh and that's what I think is, is so important. I remember when I first met you, what struck me so deeply was you ask, what's your name? Others I'd see you meet for the first time, you'd ask, what's your name? 
the feeling of being included is such a powerful tool to connect. Who inspired that the most in you? Well, I guess I always look back at certain players I knew of, and like Bobby Hull uh, always signed every autograph for fans till the last one was signed. He never wanted to disappoint anyone. And, uh, and I always thought it's so easy to just say, hi, what's your name and what do you do? Mm-hmm. And have the guy think, he asked me what my job is and what my name is. And uh, so a friend of mine said the same thing you did, Mike. He said, you know, I've been with you when people come up and talk to you and want an autograph, and you always say to them, what is your name and, and what do you do? And he said, I think that's great. It's such a simple thing to do, and it lasts in the memory of those fans as opposed to somebody who says, get away from me. I don't, I don't sign autographs or, you know, I've never understood somebody being that rude to people. Uh, So that was always in my mind. The other thing was I never wanted anyone to walk away and say, boy, what a jerk he was. I asked him for an autograph or whatever, and he didn't even pay any attention to me. And so I had that in my mind all the time, you know, don't embarrass anyone. Uh, especially yourself, and and have that image in that guy's mind of you not cooperating with him. And it really pleases me when fans would come up and say, Bob, I met you when I was 10 years old, Mm. and I wrote you a letter, and you wrote back to me, and I still have that letter. Uh, So that, to me, sends the importance of being kind and friendly with people that are your fans. What's the funniest moment you ever saw off the ice? Oh, boy, you know, the players, when we traveled years ago, more so than now, used to play some pranks on on people. Uh, I guess I didn't really see this, but I, I had heard about it. A training camp that the Kings had for the first 12 years I was with them was in Victoria, British Columbia. And we had Bernie Nichols with us and Phil Sykes. And Bernie was kind of a prankster. He and Phil Sykes one night in Victoria in the hotel. It was a nice night. Two rookies in junior were in the next room to Bernie. Uh, They decided, let's go over there and sneak in the room and scare them. (laughs) So they did. And a nice night. And the sliding glass door was open. And they crawled into the room went over to the bed, and what they didn't know was that the two rookies had been sent back to their junior team during the day, (laughs) and two elderly women now were in that room. And Bernie climbed over to the, crawled over to the first bed, got up and went, ah! And this woman sat bolt upright in bed, screaming, and... (laughs) And Phil comes in behind him. He didn't know what's going on. He goes to the other bed, scream, screams, and the woman sets up. Bernie said, that woman scared me more than I scared her. <laughs> <laughs> and so they both went back to their room next door, and they were on the floor in hysterics, laughing. But the two women called the front desk. They called the police, and the police came over, and Bernie and, and Phil had to pay for the women's room and everything else. And and Pat Quinn was the head coach at that time. He was not very happy when he heard that. But when they told Pat the story, 
by the time they got to the end, even Pat Quinn was in hysterics <laughs> laughing at that. And they probably never heard the end of it after that. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. The show. Time now for the show. Bob Miller is our guest on Voices Up Close. I've been looking forward to getting to these. First off, Wayne Gretzky and the Los Angeles Kings in Edmonton, 1989-90 to season. A minute one to go. If he doesn't do it tonight, Kings are home Tuesday night. Boston Bruins, a sustained roar by the crowd. Now it quiets down. Nichols will face off in the Oilers zone to the left of Ranford. Gretzky is standing over in the slot to the left side. Kings are down 4-3, trying to tie this game up. Off the draw. Here's Lowe with a minute to go in the game. Lowe cleared of the blue line, held in by Duchesne. Duchesne pass in deep to Taylor. To Gretzky, he scores! He's done it! Wayne Gretzky, the great one, has become the greatest of them all. The leading scorer in the history of the National Hockey League. Wayne Gretzky breaking Gordy Howe's all-time points record. Could you really conceive that he would do this in Edmonton? Well, you know, the way his career went, I guess I, I said it really was fitting that, that that's where it happened because he was so great in Edmonton. And then here he comes back uh, in front of the Oiler fans and, uh, and breaks the record of Gordie Howe. And they gave him a standing ovation knowing they were sitting in on history. They stopped the game. I mean, he scored a, the goal to tie the game with like under 53 seconds to go. Then they stopped the game for about 10 minutes, had a ceremony at center ice, and then started the game again. And who gets the game-winning goal in overtime but Wayne Gretzky? So his, his career just seemed to go that way. And it was because of his hard work and his, his unbelievable uh, attention to where, anticipating where the puck would be and being in the right place at the right time. He wasn't the greatest skater, wasn't the biggest guy, but his, his anticipation of where the puck would be was outstanding. Clip number two brings us to March 1994, the Kings against the Vancouver Canucks, and Wayne Gretzky up ice with the Kings on a power play in search of 802. Chip McAhead to Robitaille. tie with Gretzky to trailer. Gets it to Gretzky. Right side to McSorley. Back in front to Gretzky. He scores! Wayne Gretzky! What do you recall about that night? You know, I, I said something at the end of when he passed Gordie Howe in points. A friend of mine said, what are you going to say when it happens? And I thought, well, I, I just hope I get the play-by-play -play right. And, and he said, well, aren't you going to say something else? And I thought, well, I better have something ready. So I did, and I'm glad I did because I've heard it ever since. So four years later, he's going for 802 and passed Gordie Howe again. And I thought, now i got to come up with something hmm. else to say. And uh, uh, so, you know, it wasn't spontaneous because we knew that it was going to happen. It's just a matter of another goal, and he was going to do it. And what I remember of that game, Kirk McLean, the goaltender for Vancouver, was so far out of the net when McSorley passed the puck over to Gretzky that Gretzky had a wide-open net mm -hmm. to put it in. And again, this one happened at home in front of the home fans, which made it even more special. 
and uh, it was uh, it was a it was a great moment. Those two calls were two of the favorite that I've had of all time. And like I say, they've been played over and over and over again. And going into those games, you just think, don't make a mistake <laughs> because they're going to replay these forever and you're going to hear that mistake all the time. Clip number three, a moment that Kings fans had waited for forever. Game six against New Jersey. Puck comes to the blue line to Talinder. The Kings are going to be Stanley Cup champions. 46 seconds to go. And up to center ice, here's Brown. But it's out of his reach and cleared back up to center ice. And now 34 seconds to go. This is for you, Kings fans, wherever you may be. All the frustration and disappointment of the past is gone. The 45-year drought is over. The Los Angeles Kings are indeed the kings of the National Hockey League. They are the 2012 Stanley Cup champions. The countdown is on. Three, two, one. It's over. Bob, that evening, what do you recall as far as the emotion? And at one point, did you feel the most emotional? I think it was when the Kings scored three goals on a major power play against New Jersey. And the third one made it a three-goal lead for the Kings. Uh, and you just thought that that's the dagger because, you know, anything less than that, New Jersey would feel, well, we can come back with that. But the, uh, uh, the, the goal by Trevor Lewis on the third goal on the power play uh, was really a, a backbreaker and uh, made it three nothing Kings. They scored three power play goals on that one power play. Um, and then the other thing that really got to me was the Kings had a six to one lead in the game and time running down. So four minutes to go and the crowd is chanting, we've got the cup, we've got the cup. And my partner, Jim Fox, is over there saying, no, don't say that. Don't say that. You know? <laughs> and uh, to me, it was just so great that the fans had a chance to just cheer for the final three, four or five minutes, knowing we're not going to blow this. We've got the Stanley Cup. And uh, the, even the players on the bench were jumping around. And Daryl Sutter, the coach, had to remind, hey, just stay in the game here, you know, don't celebrate yet. And uh, so it was, a, it was a great ending to that game and a great celebration on the ice. Clip number four, 2014, just two years later, Alec Martinez in game five against the New York Rangers. Broussard checked by Clifford. Broussard's pass up the middle, broken up by the Kings and brought back up to center ice. Here on the left side, Martinez over to Clifford. Right side, shot from there, and a save, and a rebound, yes! score! Yes! Kings win the cup! Oh! The Kings, Martinez getting yes! the rebound. Yes! The Kings have won the Stanley oh! Cup! The Kings in the longest game in their history oh! win it three to two. Kyle Clifford, Bob, instrumental. He's going on the ice. He gets it there. It ends up being one of those second chance opportunities with shot, rebound, and Martinez had his legs. You 
you can see he was jumping. He jumps on the rebound, and Kings win it. Three, two, and OT. Royalty reigns again in the National Hockey League for the second time in three years. The Los Angeles Kings have ascended to the throne. The Kings are the 2014 Stanley Cup champions. Bob, that night was a little more of a high wire act compared to New Jersey. The building and how it felt that evening, how to compare? Well, that whole series, that whole playoff series that year was uh, different than it was in 2012. 2012, the Kings just, for some reason, and they were the last place team to get into the playoffs, the eighth seed. No eighth-seeded team had ever won the Stanley Cup, still hasn't. So the Kings set a record there. They won 10 straight road games. That was a record, still is. And in 2014, they started the playoffs down three games to none to the San Jose Sharks. Mm -hmm. And only three teams in history of the NHL had ever come back from being down 3 nothing to, to win uh, the, the Stanley Cup. And the Kings came back and won four straight against San Jose to beat them and, uh, and then went on and, and won, uh, you know, the other series, played uh, St. Louis in the, or Anaheim, excuse me, in the second round, won a game seven there. So they won game seven in round one against San Jose, game seven in round two against Anaheim, game seven in round three against Chicago, which was a tremendous game because nobody in Chicago thought that the Kings would go in there and win in the United Center and eliminate the Blackhawks. And the, when Martinez uh, scored that winning goal in that game to send the Kings to the final, you felt the air just go out of that building in the United Center in Chicago. And then in the final, uh, uh, a great series against the New York Rangers, which... The Kings again had a 3 nothing lead in that series, and the final game that the Kings won to win the Cup went into two overtimes, so exciting, and Alec Martinez again got the game-winning goal on the rebound as it came off of uh, Lundqvist, and from my vantage point, I could see half the net wide open, and Marty uh, scored Martinez from the left wing, put it in the net, and the place just erupted again. So, uh, you know, it was it was so exciting to to see him do that, and and that whole series was so exciting. Clip number five, quite fitting because this happened to Vin Scully, your baseball counterpart in Los Angeles, uh, also a member of what we would call Mount Rushmore with sportscasters in L.A. Charlie Culberson won it in walk-off fashion. Drew Doughty had the honors right here against the Chicago. Blackhawks. And the puck taken by the Kings, and here's Carter. Carter with Doughty, two on one. Carter with Doughty. Carter in deep to Doughty. Scores! Kings win in overtime! A two on one break and a great pass. And the Kings have won the game over Chicago in a three on three overtime. In that home game, Bob, so much emotion for your final game in the booth at Staples Center. How special will that day and Drew Doughty be for you? Well, that'll always be special because uh, uh, you always want to, to get the call right, and and I did. I don't want to brag about it, but, you know, it was a two-on-one break with uh, with Carter, 
and the, the crowd noise and everything else uh, was so exciting. And, and you just realize that they've got a chance to, to uh, uh, win this thing here, uh, two on one, and they did. And uh, it, it just brought me, uh, Jim Fox said, Bob, I could see you coming right out of your seat as that play developed. As it got more and more down the ice into the Blackhawk zone, I was coming out of my seat. So when he scored, I was almost standing up. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a great, great moment, uh, especially the final game at home for me and for all the fans and the celebrations we had after that game. This one also goes way back, 1976, a chance for Boston to end the Kings' season at the Forum. Butch Goring had other ideas. Murdoch's pass, gets it himself, gives it to Nevin, Nevin to Goring, Bruin, Bruin, Goring in the middle, in the slot, he shoots, scores! From the slot, ends the game. The Kings win it. Four to three. We're going back to Boston. And you won't forget that one, Bob. Why is that? That was such a series because Boston, nobody thought the Kings would ever be uh, going to a game seven in that playoff series against Boston. In fact, Lee Montville in the Boston Globe wrote an article, and I still have it somewhere, said kings of the living dead and he said this is a game tonight it was game seven after after that game you re- referenced game seven was back in boston and the headline was this is the game no one in boston ever thought would be played that the kings would be one win away from eliminating the bruins well in the previous game in uh, 1976 the kings had come back after being trounced by the bruins and so the game was at the Forum in L.A. and goes into overtime. At that time, when Goring scored, it was the longest overtime in King history. It was uh, just over 18 minutes into the overtime against the Bruins with Jerry Cheevers in goal. And uh, the Kings had the, the puck and Bob Nevin playing for the Kings. Bob Murdoch was a defenseman for the Kings. He gave it to Bob Nevin. Nevin gave it to Butch Goring. Goring comes across the blue line and uh, fires a shot, a fairly long shot at Cheevers, and it went just inside the left goalpost to win the game for the Kings. And it was the first and only time in my history that I've ever seen a player carried off the ice on the shoulders of his teammates in hockey. You just didn't see that much in hockey. You do in other sports. But the Kings players jumped on the ice, lifted Goring onto their shoulders, skated off with him. The series tied three apiece. And my call after Goring had scored, it was Goring scores. We're going back to Boston. And uh, we went back there and unfortunately got shut out 3 nothing and lost the series. But uh, it, it was a great moment in Kings history uh, with Butch Goring scoring that goal. Then the next year, they got into another series with Boston, and that went six games, and uh, the Kings got eliminated, had a chance to clear the puck. Dave Hutchison had it on his stick, and as he went to clear it, his stick broke, and Greg Shepard of Boston picked it up and scored what turned out to be the game-winning goal. Mm. So 
things happen in the game of <laughs> hockey that you can't explain sometimes. It's a funny game, that is for sure. The work. Word association. Time now for word association, and we go right into a huge encyclopedia of sports that has to do with you, Bob. This is going to be a ton of fun. First off, the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. Well, that was quite a day for me. I'm honored to to get a star there on the Hollywood Walk of Fame 2006. And my sister-in-law and her husband flew out here from Wisconsin to attend the ceremony because they have it right on the street on Hollywood Boulevard. And it was on a Monday morning. And on Friday, my sister-in-law said, I want to go down and see those stars. So we went down and came up to where mine would be. And they had it blocked off with wooden barricades. And as we're looking at it, a a woman that I didn't know and her daughter, a woman and about her 25-year-old daughter, came by and stood right next to me. And the woman said to her daughter, I wonder whose star this is. I didn't say anything. And again, she said, yeah, I wonder whose star this is. And I turned to her and I said, that's my star. She said, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Like she didn't believe it at all. So uh, that that was a a funny moment uh, that that you don't expect. And I used it in my remarks the next day uh, or the next time they had the ceremony on Monday. And uh, uh, so it worked out great. But that was a moment uh, that I'll never forget from that uh, from that in, uh, incident. Number two, this should be good. Don Rickles. Don Rickles was interviewed at a Kings game uh, by Rich Murata, my partner at that point. And Rich called me during the morning and he said, "Hey, would would you do the interview with Rickles? Because he's just going to rip me apart." And I said, "No, no, that I don't want to horn in on your job, Rich. Uh, you interview him." So we're both sitting there, and Don Rickles comes on, and he looks at us, and he says, you know, you two guys look like you're landing planes at LAX with your <laughs> headphones on. And, and then he'd say, you know, Rich, I like you better than Bob. And he'd go on, and then he'd say to me later, Bob, I like you better than Rich, but you both look like mannequins with keys on the back when you're on TV, like somebody wound you up. And uh, he, was, he was really funny. And you know the one thing he was—he was with the uh, sitcom um, CPO Sharky or whatever it was. When when he got off the air, he said, "Thank you guys for plugging the the show." They were very appreciative for any plug that you gave the show that they were in on on TV or movies. Number three, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, as I mentioned before, he came to Kings games and uh, he wasn't president then, but he would come to the games sit right down by the glass, and we had him, we had a sportscaster's camp that we used to run, Mm. Roy Engelbrecht and I, and it was for people who wanted to be play-by-play announcers and always said, I'm better than the guy I'm listening to on the radio or on TV. And so we'd give him a chance to to come and and do NBA Summer Pro League, Major League Baseball, uh, hockey on the big screen, and you'd have a partner, and you'd do the game on tape and, and get used to doing some play-by-play. And uh, so Roy Engelbrecht called me one day. He said we'd have a commencement. They were here five days, and we'd have a little commencement ceremony. <clears throat> and Roy called and said, guess who our commencement speaker will be? And I said, I don't know. He said, a former sports announcer. I said, well, that doesn't narrow it down too much. But he said, uh, former 
president of the United States. I said, Ronald Reagan? He said, yes. I said, well, how did you do that? He said, I wrote to them, told them that we had a bunch of people who just wanted to be sportscasters, and Ronald Reagan was a former sportscaster, and they wrote back, the president will be there. He'll love being there. Mm. And he did. He did get there. And uh, uh, I went down to meet him when he pulled up. It was a little scary for me because I'd never been around where Secret Service guys were standing around with <laughs> those earplugs in their ears saying, he's one minute away, he's 30 seconds away. And the big limo pulled up and outstepped Reagan. And a funny thing was this hotel where we had this commencement exercise had a coffee shop where you went out of the hotel and down the sidewalk about a, a few hundred feet to the coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And a tourist was coming back, walking, and I'm sure wondering, I wonder if I'll see any celebrities in L.A. And just as he got there, the limo pulled up and outstepped Ronald Reagan. And the tourist stepped back. Whoa! He looked at him and stepped back, couldn't believe what he was seeing. And uh, so Reagan came up. They said, the, his uh, handlers said, he'll speak for 20 minutes, no press conference. Um, you can have TV cameras there, but no, no questions and answers, and that's it. So he started out, and he was not, maybe at the start of, of uh, Alzheimer's disease, and he was kind of reading and stumbling around, hmm. and I thought, oh, this is going to be a disaster. And finally, he just kind of threw the script away, and he said, I want to tell you how I got my first job in broadcasting. Hmm. And he just ad-libbed it. <clears throat> said, I, I went to, I grew up in Illinois. I drove over to Davenport, Iowa, went in, and the guy said, can you do a football game when that red light comes on? And Reagan said, well, yeah. He played football. He said, I knew all the players on our team and some of them on the other team. And he said, I recreated the final game. And in that final game, I was supposed to, he was a guard. I was supposed to pull out and lead the end run and throw a block. And I missed my block. But in that broad rebroadcast I did, I threw the greatest block in college football <laughs> history. <laughs> And uh, and then he's, he, he did a little play-by-play. -play. He said, you know, I did the Cubs games on ticker tape on WHO in Des Moines. And uh, he said all they do is send you ball one, strike one, ball two, strike two. He said you couldn't sell any Wheaties doing that. You had to improvise. Mm -hmm. And he said so you'd have to, you know, embellish it a little bit and say, okay, here's the pitch, here's the ground ball, second base, second baseman goes over, scoops it up, throws the first, he's out at first. And the whole audience there, we had about 150 hmm. of these campers, they're applauding and everything, and he said, that's the way you have to do it. And if the ticker tape breaks, you always had a dog run on the field so that while they were fixing the ticker tape and you got more information of what was going on, You'd have him chasing the dog out into center field. Now he's chasing him down the right field. There was no dog on the field. You were just making it up to, to kill time. But he said, this is really uh, a coincidence. When the ticker tape started again, the first words that came through was, game delayed, dog on the field. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, Nick Nixon.
Nick Nixon was uh, promoted to me by uh, a fellow uh, coach of the Kings who coached or, play, or coached in New Haven, and Nick was the announcer there, and said, "I think you'll get along with him. He's really a good guy." And we were looking for someone to do color, and I called Nick and I told him Nick was doing play-by-play in the American Hockey League in New Haven, and uh, I told him I said, "Nick, this is not play-by-play. This is color." And uh, so you might want to decide whether you want to take the job or not. And he said, no, I'm going to take it. I want to get a foot in the door in the NHL. And uh, so he and I worked together for eight years, had a great time, went to a lot of movies together. He was a movie buff, and so am I. And and uh, uh, he was a great help to me. And uh, then when in 1990, they split the simulcast and we went I went to TV and Nick took over the radio and he still does it today, the radio play by play. And that's when, uh, that's when my, our association with each other as far as being on the air changed. But, uh, we had a lot of fun together working uh, for eight years. Number five, Jim Fox. Jim Fox uh, was my partner in 1990. That's when we split the simulcast and to Jim's credit, you know, he's kind of not forced into that role, but uh, Roy Malacher, who was uh, head of the Kings as president and everything at uh, that time, picked Jim to be uh, the color announcer. And, and, and Jim was a player for 10 years. He, he'd not had any training in broadcasting. And, uh, and by his own admission, he said, I'll tell you, I struggled. And he said it was four years before I knew what the heck we were doing every night. And uh, uh, I don't think it was that long. In my opinion, about the first half of the season in 1990, I thought Jim's not going to last. He's going to quit. He felt he was embarrassing himself. Finally, in game number 40, he had a really good game. And I said to him, Jim, I think you enjoyed yourself tonight. And he said, I did. And from then on, he got better. And right now, and, and not only right now, but for years and years, he was so good being the analyst because he worked at it and so many analysts think well I played 10 years in the league I don't have to do any homework I'll just sit down and comment on the game and and they're not very good Jim worked diligently before every broadcast went to every practice talked to coaches talked to players had stories on them had them all written down and and uh, did good good interviews great with a telestrator uh, turned out to be uh, a great partner of mine. He and I were the longest together of any play-by-play and color man in the NHL uh, for 27 years. So he, w- he was a really great help to me. A master of communication and taught so many about the game watching it in Southern California. Number six, Rocky Marciano. Rocky Marciano. I interviewed him in Madison, Wisconsin. He's, the, of course, the ex-heavyweight champion of the world. Might have been the heavyweight champion then. I can't remember. This was in the early 19, uh, 1960, mid-60s, yeah. 1960s. And so we're getting ready to do the interview, and he says to me, boy, I am so nervous. <laughs> and I said, what are you nervous about? He said, I got a dental appointment at the end of this interview, and I'm scared to death of dentists. I said, you're the heavyweight champion of the world. He was, he was scared to death to go to the dentist. So that's what he was nervous about. Number seven, Willie Mays. 
Willie Mays had such a great career. I was there the night that he hit four home runs in a game mm. in Milwaukee. It was then when the Braves had left Milwaukee, so they were bringing other teams in to play. I believe that's when it was. Or maybe he was playing the Braves that night. I think he was. And I went to the game, and, and he hits four home runs. So uh, before that game, uh, I, I had the cameraman with me, and I went up to him and I said, Willie, uh, introduced myself and said, could we, could we do a, a short interview with you? And he said, you're going to have to, he had this real high voice, you're going to have to talk to my agent. <laughs> and I thought, oh, don't tell me we're starting this <clears throat> with agents. <clears throat> and, and so I said, well, <clears throat> and then he turned to this rookie sitting next to him <clears throat> and he said, hey, when you hear me say, you got to talk to my agent, you start saying, I'm his agent. I'm his agent. And I thought, oh, good. We don't have to go through an agent <laughs> to talk to him. So he did the interview with me and, uh, and just, you know, just such a, a great ball player and great to talk with. Number eight, Vince Lombardi. Well, I worked at a TV station in Milwaukee and we did a show called A Week with the Packers what they do every week leading up to Sunday's game. We weren't going to show the game. We just show, here's the preparation for Sunday's game. So I typed out a three-page outline of questions to ask Vince Lombardi. We drove up to Green Bay, and I went in and, and said, Coach, uh, I have some questions, and if I ask you, what do you do on Monday, would you answer with, on Monday we do this, on Tuesday, we do this. So then they, we were doing film in those days. That was before vid, portable videotape. So they'd cut my question off the film and splice it together and be like Vince narrating the, the, uh, the show. So he said, let me see your questions. So I hand him my three-page outline, and he's got a pen in his hand, and he's editing the questions. No, not going to answer that. Not going to answer that. So... He edits it a little bit, says to me, okay, let's go. So we do it. We went about 45 minutes, and he was perfect. I thanked him. Uh, we went to lunch with our crew, and the cameraman came in during lunch and said, there was a light leak in the camera. There's nothing on the film. Oof. It's blank. And I thought, oh, no. Well, I said to everybody, well, I'll go tell him but you're going to hear him kick me out of his office from a mile away because you know what a stickler he was for preparation and, and doing things right. So, but I said, well, I'll go in and tell him. So I went in, told him what happened, and I'm just waiting for him to explode. And he said to me, is your cameraman still here? I said, yes. He said, get him in here. Let's do it again. Wow. Cameraman came in, did the whole thing again. Again, he was perfect. And later I thought, not at that time, but later I thought, that was my first real lesson in preparation. Hmm. Because if I hadn't typed type that outline and said, we're just going to wing it, coach, I don't think he'd have done it again. And uh, the kicker to the story is Vince's son worked for the Packers at that time. Hmm. And I said to his son, we were taking some other uh, film, uh, you know, I said to his son, we need someone to put helmets and shoulder pads in the lockers like it's Sunday morning. And his son says to me, why don't you have dad do it? And I thought, what? <laughs> have your dad do it after what just happened? I'm going to go up and say, Vince, would you put some shoulder pads in the locker? And I, I luckily, for the life of me, remembered 
the Packer equipment manager was nicknamed Dad. Mm. Dad Brazier. Everybody called him Dad. So here's Vince Lombardi's son saying, have Dad do it. Of course, he meant Dad Brazier, the equipment manager. So it worked out all right, but that was quite an ending to that story. And life flashes right before your very eyes. Number nine, the Forum. Well, the Forum to me, and still to this day, is one of the most distinctive buildings anywhere. You see those columns and that round uh, building, and you know that's the Forum in L.A., and Jack Ken Cook had that uh, uh, foresight to have it designed that way and, and uh, uh, called it the Fabulous Forum. And um, uh, so it was, uh, it was home uh, for me for 1960 or 1973 to 1999. And uh, a lot of people really like the Forum. It's smaller than Staples Center. You could put the Forum inside Staples Center and uh, uh, it was intimate. You had people who were, were able to see more people at a game. You know, there, was, there weren't elevators. There was just the, the one level. It, it, was, it would slope, but there wasn't a balcony, which I think is a mistake. I think in hockey, you need a balcony. You get some really great views from up there. Um, so uh, we had some very interesting games and interesting things happen. One night to my left, I'm doing the game, and the puck is shot from the blue line and comes over the glass, didn't hit anything, and I see a woman reach up and grab her forehead, and I thought, oh, gee, I think she got hit with the puck right in the forehead, and yet everybody started laughing in that section, and I thought, what are they laughing about? Well, she was wearing a wig, and the puck hit right at the top of the of the wig where it met her forehead <laughs> and took the wig about 12 rows back in the crowd, and they were passing her wig back down to her. <laughs> Pass this down to that woman. So then I realized why they were laughing, but she was lucky it wasn't an eighth of an inch lower or she'd have been in, in a tough spot. You can't see it maybe at a building like this. Number 10, last but not least, Staples Center. Well, Staples Center, it was, a, it was a delight to move into that. It took me about three months to figure out what door led to which room, and I was always mixed up. Does this go up here? Does this go there? Mm -hmm. And But we had a better location than we had at the Forum. We were higher, but it was like the top of the third level of suites, so you were still close to the ice, but high enough that you had a, a great view of the game. The visiting broadcasters always came in and said, this is one of the best viewpoints we've had. The forum, the trouble was our broadcast location was low enough that fans would get in the way of the cameras when they were going to their seats. And the biggest trouble I had, we had a walkway right in front of us, and the cotton candy guy would come by with a full pallet of cotton candy, and I couldn't see around him. I'd have to look from side to side to see the game. And uh, so we had a much better view uh, at Staples Center and just a, a beautiful building in downtown L.A. revitalized that whole area down there. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's still great to go to a game down at Staples Center. Bob, first off, what do you and Judy call the best kind of day? Well, nowadays, it's uh, that we're together, and she tells me so many times, and I appreciate it, it's so good to wake up with you because for 44 years, 
you know, I was on the road half the time. And, uh, and then the wife gets all the things that are going wrong. You know, this happened and that happened. And I had to do this and you weren't around to, to do this. And uh, so she said, I'm just very, very pleased to have you here all the time. And, and it pleases me too. I, you know, I was excited about this career. I always wanted this career. And I would, am excited and still was uh, then about doing live television or live radio, anything live, and just the excitement of it and wondering what you're going to see every night when you go to a game. It's not the same old thing. And I would, I would get not nervous but keyed up to do the game. And I think that's important because that brings the energy through and the intensity and excitement in your voice. So uh, I was excited about that. Now it's time to, to relax and, and have more time together with her and, and not have to worry about studying names and numbers mm -hmm. and, and uh, knowing uh, what the other team might do and, and not make a mistake in a game. So uh, I'm probably a lot more relaxed right now. How long did you need to prepare for a broadcast to feel ready? Well, we would start, uh, you know, if, if we played a game on a Saturday and the next game was Tuesday, on Sunday I'd be writing down the names and numbers of the next team that we were going to play. And I'd do that until I had, had it memorized. Our team I knew, but the other team, until I had it memorized. And, uh, and I thought that was a key because you can't take time to look down who's got the puck by that time. It's changed hands about three times. Um, so, and then to, to go through uh, internet articles and, and uh, talk to uh, uh, people on the other team, other broadcasters, how's your team playing? And, uh, and then our producer would call me uh, the night before to say, here's what we're going to do tomorrow. And of course, the only thing scripted was the open and between periods. And uh, otherwise, it was uh, all ad lib on the play-by-play. And we would do that uh, on the night before the game, the morning of the game, he'd call and say, okay, we're going to interview so-and-so tonight. We're going to interview this guy. And between periods, we're going to do this just so we had a knowledge of what we're going to do. I'd, I'd leave for a 7.30 game at about 2.30 in the afternoon. I'd get to the Staples Center at about 3.15, just check the latest stats from the games the night before, uh, finish any notes that I had, although I'd do those at home before I left, and uh, and then do whatever we had to do on a video. And uh, we'd have another meeting of everybody involved in the telecast just to go over again what the format was going to be and, and what we were going to do. And then we'd have dinner and then uh, go up to the booth about 45 minutes to an hour ahead of the game and just get set to to do the game. And, uh, and, and that's the way it went. And I, I love doing that. I look forward to it all the time. It's a medium that's still very story driven in hockey. I really can't think of anyone better than you who did it this way. And Vince Scully's a master in the baseball realm. how did you find the best stories? Well, I think you talk to people, you read up a lot. And I think it, as I mentioned earlier, is even tougher now to prepare because those articles that you used to never get, now you get them on your computer and you can mm. get them from any city in the league. And uh, it used to be tough to, I used to have to call the teams and say, can you give me what your roster is and your numbers? And they'd, I'd write them down. And uh, that's the only way I'd, 
I'd get anything. So a lot of times in those early years, 70s and, and early 80s, uh, without the Internet, you didn't have the access that, that you have now. And the league only sent out the stats every Monday. So if you had three more games that week, you had to update your own stats for the whole league. And uh, so you didn't get power play percentages and penalty killing and things that really enhanced your broadcast. So you had to live without those. Um, but uh, it, so it was much easier now in a way and yet more difficult because, as I said, fans have access to some of that too. And if you make a mistake, you start to lose their confidence. They say, wait, he, he made a mistake. That's not right. And you do that not often enough and they're not going to listen to you. So there was that kind of pressure, but still it was, it was just uh, pleasing to, to get through there and see all the game notes the day before from the opposing team, bring yourself up to date on what they're doing. And then with all the television that's available to watch the games of the team that you're going to play next and get a good view of who's playing and, and what that team is doing and what they've done in the past. So, so it was a, it was a lot of preparation. It wasn't where the game starts at 7.30 and you sit down at 7.25, like a lot of people think you do. <laughs> but, uh, but it was pleasing to do it that way and, and pleasing if you had a really good telecast because we had so many people working together and it was total teamwork when you're on the air, especially on TV. A treat for fans who had their eyes on Prime <laughs> Ticket was a show that you hosted called Face Off with Bob Miller. And when you spoke with so many established figures, show after show, what did you understand as far as the most important ingredient to a good interview? Well, that is to listen to what, what the interviewee is saying. And so you follow up on that question. And the easiest interview for me to do was a half hour or 40 minutes where you had time to say, let's, let's talk about what you just said a little bit more. And, and delve into that. When they say you've got two minutes to do this interview and you know you want to get to certain important questions, uh, you're, you're under the gun to, to get that in. And you don't have the time to say, let's, let's follow up on what you just said. So uh, the important thing is to, to listen to, to what the person is saying to you and, and, and feed your next question off of what he or she just said, if it's available to do so. Biggest change in broadcasting for you and what you see now versus back in the 1970s is what? The speed of the game and players all over the ice. When I started, the game was not nearly as fast. Defensemen were always back at the blue line. The wingers, they always said, oh, he goes up and down the wing. And I thought, was that is that all he does all night is go up and down that <laughs> wing? And, and then they started crisscrossing. And now you look up and you can't believe your eyes. Is that a defenseman behind the net? And they're all over in the speed of the game. And the other biggest change, and I see it from watching old tapes, is the, the play of the goaltender, who is so good now because everybody's got goaltending coaches. And the goaltender is most nights in perfect position to play his, his position and make the save. Whereas the old films I see, and the goaltender's out, he's on one leg, he's off balance, half the net is open, and, uh, and the, 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 the offensive team is scoring goals at will. So uh, the change in that, the, the addition of goaltending coaches, uh, 
you know, when Bob Pulford was the Kings coach, he was the only coach, no assistants, no goaltending coach. So if the goaltender had problems, who's going to help him? Yeah. You know, Bob Pulford didn't play goal, so he had no one to go to. Now Bill Ranford for the Kings, outstanding goaltender and goaltending coach now for the Kings, um, uh, can can help Jonathan Quick and and all of the goaltenders and and it's a tremendous advantage to them and and I think that's the the big difference and why some games are uh, you know one nothing two to one is because of the play of the goaltender being in perfect position. So when you mention about the speed of the game and for people who are getting into broadcasting, we often hear of the term word economy or even as well differentiation for one certain term because it's a long, long game. How did you find a balance as far as how much of it was appropriate during a full game? Yeah, I don't think I knew that right away. And then I learned later on, you don't have to talk about every single pass. If the puck is 200 feet away from the other goal, you don't have to, you don't have to describe who's passing to whom until they get further up the ice. It's a time to put something else into the broadcast and let the listener breathe a little bit, even even just stop talking for a, a second or two and, and let him breathe and uh, uh, not talk constantly about so-and-so pass to this guy, to this guy, this guy, this guy. You know, that gets a little monotonous and it's not a bearing on a scoring play. As, as one of the uh, announcers in Canada, I think it was Bob Cole, said to his color man one night, I know you know more about this game than I do, but when that puck crosses center ice, you shut up <laughs> and, and let him talk. And, uh, and, and that's about right. So you can keep up with the pace of the game, but you can add other things, you know, the color and let the color announcer come in, let him have his space to talk. And after a goal, I've always thought just stop talking. And you mentioned Vin Scully. Vin is great at that. Let the crowd bring the emotion through the radio or TV to the viewer. And so I always tried to beat the roar of the crowd by a split second on a goal. You can't always do it, but and maybe do it less now when 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 goals are tipped in and you're you're not sure who who did get a stick on it. There's so much in front of the net play that goes on now. Uh, but if you could always say, you know, so-and-so shoots, he scores, and then the crowd roars, it just comes through to the to the guy at home uh, listening and watching the game. And uh, so you have certain goals during the game, <clears throat> and and I knew that there were some nights we'd be driving home, my wife would say, how'd it go? And they'd say, oh, okay, uh, I didn't do very well on this first and third goal. I kind of didn't do what I wanted to do. But then you got to remember probably only you know what you are trying to do. The listener is saying, hey, what a great call. It sounded great. He doesn't know that, well, he wanted to get this in and this in and he didn't get it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so you can beat yourself crazy about that when, when the listener didn't know that you felt you messed something up. He's just listening to the excitement and intensity in your call. When we can get back to normal, where's the first place you and Judy want to go? I'd like to go into a restaurant and sit down and have a meal uh, without having to have someone bring it out to the car. <laughs> <laughs> Are you into Mexican these days or uh, Italian or anything else? Oh, any, any of those. 
but uh, it, it's just nice to be with another couple or two other couples, go into a restaurant, talk about things face-to-face, and uh, be able to do that. I miss that uh, these days. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that'll be the first thing a lot of people will want to do when you get back to being able to leave the house. So that's probably what we'll do. Well, Bob, certainly it's been a slice. I end with this. The Kings, obviously, seven-game win streak entering the pause. Give some hope for when this team can finally get maybe right back to it. First young Kings player that comes to mind that fans must keep their eyes on the most is who? Adrian Kempe. He's, uh, he's got great skill, great skater. He's struggled a little bit at times scoring. Sometimes wants to overpass a little bit. And uh, But... Uh, I think I've seen in games that he has scored that he has the potential when he learns the game a little bit more and uh, knows to take the shot when he's got it and and not pass it up for the perfect play. Uh, I think he's one uh, to watch. And the Kings were coming around really well as a team before this pause in the season on a seven-game win streak. And uh, it's too bad, although we weren't going to make the playoffs this year, but that they wouldn't have those last dozen or so games to improve on that and then get ready for what could be a really good year next year. So, uh, you know, it's or improvement next year, I should say. The really good year may be still a couple of years away for them to get back to Stanley Cup contention. Although you never know, as, as we came in uh, as the eighth seed in 2012 and ripped right through the playoffs and won the Stanley Cup. So... Uh, and St. Louis, last year, last place on January 3rd, last place in the overall standings in the league, and come through and win the Stanley Cup. So uh, things things can happen that will surprise you. That's why you play the games on ice and not on paper. Bob, this was a treasure chest of information, of entertainment. We could do this all day. I'm happy we got the time to unpack a lot. This was a treat. I wish you health, safety, and sooner than later, see you back among the faces here at Staples Center. Thank you very much once again here for joining us. Okay, well, thank you, and the same to you, Mike. You've done a great job. You've worked hard, and I know there's a lot of success in your future. Well, thank you very much, sir. Awfully, awfully kind of you to say that. Thank you very much once again for your time. That's Bob Miller joining us on Voices Up Close. That does it for now. I hope you enjoyed this. I'll never, ever forget recording this episode, friends, and sharing it with you. He's a role model. He's a legend. He'll forever be tied to excellence on the air and in life. Bob Miller, 44-year voice, Hockey Hall of Fame member, now team ambassador for the Los Angeles Kings. Big thanks to Bob and his time today from Southern California. Joining us on Voices Up Close, LAKings.com, home of the Kings for updates. Big thanks as well to the media relations staff of the Kings. They were tremendous in their assistance helping assemble this episode. And that's what we aim for here each episode. I hope you enjoyed it and hope that you'll join us next time. Again, find me on Twitter, Benton underscore Mike. Next episode coming your way very soon. Again, I'm on Twitter, Benton underscore Mike. You can listen to us on demand, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. This is Voices Up Close. I'm Mike Benton. Be safe and talk soon.